Every Lord's Day in the afternoon, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian and the Reformed faith, and we use that as our guide to study what Scripture says about broad topics. This, this week, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 24. That Lord's Day is on page 538 of your books of praise. Lord's Day 24, this builds right off of Lord's Day 23, which says that we are saved Uh, through Christ without any merit of our own. And so, question 62 asks, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned, this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 23, builds off of what was said in Lord's Day, or we're in Lord's Day 24, this builds off of what was said in Lord's Day 23. And I double-checked to make sure that Reverend Paul did in fact preach that message so that you can hear these two in sequence because it's important. Lord's Day 23 establishes the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to assume that Reverend Paul used that phrase. I I hope he used a phrase like it. But that's what it teaches, that Christ's righteousness is ours, and that is how we we are saved. Lord's Day 24 then comes with three objections against that notion. They come from one's conscience or one's inner convictions. They come from Scripture or a certain interpretation of Scripture. And then finally, the third objection comes from one's experience, uh, especially within the church. So there's three objections to this idea that Christ's righteousness can be imputed to ours without our own righteousness counting in itself. The first comes from one's conscience or one's inner convictions. There's a problem there. I feel like my obedience counts for something in God's eyes. I feel like it ought to count before God. I feel like God is watching me to see if I obey and that that will ultimately determine whether I am saved or not. We feel this way. We feel like our obedience, if we do obey, that our obedience is what distinguishes us from the next person who doesn't obey and ultimately isn't saved. And we might feel that way even while being happy to admit that it is, we do need God's grace in order to obey. And, and we might be happy to even say that God takes the initiative, but still it seems correct to us to say, my obedience ultimately makes the difference whether I am saved or not, even if it's by the power of God's Spirit working together with me. 
And what's right about this is that there is a correlation between my obedience and and whether I am saved. Those who live ungodly lives will not be saved. The the New Testament is very clear about that. You might take 1 Corinthians 6 where, where Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is clearly a correlation between one's obedience and one's ultimate salvation. So the conclusion feels like, in our conscience, it feels like my obedience counts for my salvation. So Roman Catholics have taken the approach of semi-Pelagianism, and that's especially what this Lord's Day is is pushing back against. What that teaches is is that our salvation is based both on Jesus' merit, the things that Christ has accomplished for us, as well as the things that we do ourselves. Those two come together to finish the complete picture of, of our salvation. And, and they would say God's Spirit works together with our will. That's, that's true. We even confess that in the, in the Canons of Dort. To produce the fruits of righteousness. That's, that's true. And that ultimately determines whether we are saved. And that's where the error lies. That our righteousness, even though it's it's supported by Christ, by Christ's Spirit, produces our salvation. Therein lies the error. But this does validate our feelings that God is watching to see whether we obey and that that will ultimately determine where we go. The problem, practically, on the ground, is very quickly this leads to the question, how good is good enough? How good do you need to be to, to, to be saved? How many times do you need to go to the church? What's, what's the bare minimum? And Paul encountered this same way of thinking with, with the Galatians that you might find in a Roman Catholic church. In, in Galatians 1 verse 6, after a brief greeting, Paul gets straight to the point and he says, I'm astonished that you Galatians are so quickly abandoning the gospel You are so quickly abandoning him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now that gospel that they were turning to was that we are ultimately saved to to one degree or another by whether or not we keep a certain law. In their case, it was the Jewish ritual ceremonial law, but it might be anything else. In fact, this is usually how it goes. When someone puts their faith in their performance, if your salvation is based on how well you perform, then you'll ultimately end up putting your hope in rituals and and ceremonies. Because if you put your hope in the whole law, you immediately see how far you fail. So the Galatians were putting their hope in ceremonies, circumcision, things like that. Roman Catholics put their hope in prayers and penance and other ceremonies. And even many Reformed Christians might ultimately put their hope in reading, reading the Bible or going to church and thinking that those ceremonies, those rituals will determine whether or not God approves of them. So we, we justify ourselves by pointing to the, the laws that we're able to keep and the rituals that we're able to do because we're never able to fulfill the whole of the law. 
You think of what Christ said of, of the Jews of his day, that they, they perform the rituals of the law, but ignore the weightier matters of the law, the substance of the law. So Paul warns the, the Galatians in, in chapter 3, verse 10, which we read together, all who rely on the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and do them. Whoever does not keep all the law is a lawbreaker and cannot then be saved, at least not on that basis. You might think also then of what he writes in Galatians 5, verse 2. He says, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and he means there as your righteousness before God, if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that if he does so, he's obligated to keep the whole law. And his point is this, it's one or the other. If you accept that your salvation, that God's acceptance of you is based even to the smallest degree on your performance, then Christ is worthless to you. Either you're saved by your obedience or you're saved by Christ's obedience. So he says in verse 4 again of Galatians 5, If you do that, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Instead, he gives the alternative in, in verse 5. Galatians 5, verse 5, he says, Instead, through the Spirit, we, uh, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, we don't work to earn that righteous standing before God. We wait for that hope from somewhere else. It comes from outside of us. The point then, our righteousness is outside of ourselves. It's found in Christ. You find the same message in, in Philippians Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, For Christ's sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain one thing, and that's Christ, and be found in Him. And he says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. Here's the point. As long as we believe that, that the degree to which God accepts us depends, even to the smallest degree, on our performance. We lose the entire gospel. That's the point that Paul is driving home to these Corinthians who believe that if they got circumcised and kept other matters of the law, this would contribute to their standing before God. He says, you've fallen away from grace. There's a, a great story of the Puritan John Bunyan. For, for many years he was tormented with uncertainty, as many Puritans were, uncertainty about his standing before God. Am I really elect? Does God really love me? And, and even after knowing the Gospel, he was tormented by, are my works enough? Am I living enough of a Christian life to be accepted by God. And he writes, One day I was passing into the field and, and this sentence fell upon my soul. Your, thy righteousness, you'll excuse the old English, he says, Thy righteousness is in heaven. 
And he says, I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand, and there I say was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that he lacks my righteousness because there it was right in front of him. And I saw even more, he says, that it was not my good frame of heart, my positive uh, Christian attitude. It was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, this brought the chains off of my hands and feet to begin living a Christian life. This is the gospel, and the same gospel that Paul is preaching. He says, we hope for the righteousness which is in heaven. Our righteousness is not here on earth. The the thing that makes you acceptable to God is not your performance. It's very easy to believe that, to some degree at least, God is looking to our performance, and He judges us from that. But he doesn't. He looks to Christ. And if he looks anywhere else, we lose the gospel. Now, if you go back to Galatians 5, some people might, might point to the next verse. He says, uh, so going back to verse 5, he says, Through the Spirit, we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And some might say, well, he still says that that faith needs to be working through love. So isn't that love still counting towards our obedience and counting then towards our salvation? Is it fair to say, for example, we're saved by an obedient faith? Or we're saved by a faith that obeys or a faith that loves? Well, Paul would say, and it's very clear from Galatians, if, you're, if you mean that it's that obedience that saves you, then no. Otherwise, your righteousness isn't in heaven. If the goal of that love is to earn your salvation, is it really even love? That's not Paul's point, of course, at all. Paul's point is that that faith will work through love. What spurs me on in my pursuit of righteousness? Is it to earn my standing before God? Well, there's no gospel there. But is it, is it love that flows out of faith? That's how the gospel works. Christ saves me, and I love Him, and that love changes my life. So that's the objection, first of all, from, from one's conscience. We feel that our obedience earns us at least some standing before God, but it it destroys the gospel. The second objection comes from Scripture itself. Some would say, well, sure, but doesn't God say that He rewards our works? A good example might be in in Romans chapter 1. Feel free to turn there with me. Romans 1 verse 6. It's worded very, very strongly. No, not not verse 6. Verse 26. Still not. No, Romans 2, verse 6. I found it. 
in, in Romans 2 verse 6, Paul says, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil on the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Doesn't a verse like that teach that God is looking, after all, to our righteousness? Well, it might if you don't read further. But if you go to the, even the very next verse, Paul is building up an argument. He's saying this is how God works. He rewards good. He punishes evil. But look at the next verse. For as many have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law, will be judged by the law. And so he goes in the next verses to show how all men are under sin. Yes, God rewards good. God punishes evil. But look at yourself. Which are you? And he says if you're a Jew... The, the final assessment is you're a sinner. You're under God's judgment. If you're a Greek, you might not even have the law, and yet you're a sinner still under God's judgment. So you get to chapter 3, verse 19, where he finishes that argument. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, there are many other similar verses that, that speak of God rewarding each one according to his deeds. But they need to be read in light of the gospel. In this case, Paul is building up to the gospel. In others, it looks back to the gospel and calls then uh, calls us to repentance. You might think of Revelation chapter 22, right by the, right near the end of the Bible, where where the Lord Jesus Himself says, "Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense or reward with me to repay each one for what he has done." So the call isn't then now, therefore, go and earn your righteousness before I come. No, the call is, therefore, repent and then find your righteousness in Christ. That verse is there in light of the gospel which has come just before it. Now it's true, God does promise to reward our good works. There are many examples. You might take Matthew 5, verse 12, where he says, Rejoice and be glad, you who are persecuted, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Matthew 6, verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So there is clearly a reward, even in the context of the Gospel. There is a reward for our, our good works. There is a reward for the outworking of your faith. But we also need to remember what, what Christ teaches in Luke 17. When you've done all that you are commanded, you still must say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So yes, God does reward us over and above the salvation that He gives us. 
But God doesn't owe this reward to anyone. It's not a reward we earn that we can demand from God. It's a reward, as the Catechism says, that He gives out of grace. And even more to the point, this reward is not talking about how sinners make themselves right with God. Otherwise, Christ died in vain. It's talking about how sinners already right with God then go and serve Him and how God, above and beyond what He has given them, continues to reward them. So the Catechism just answers it with a simple one-liner. It says, this reward is not earned. It's the gift of grace. Now there's one final objection, and I would say this is probably the hardest objection to answer, and that's the objection that comes from experience. It's very hard to escape this charge. Also, as a Canadian Reformed Church, some might make this accusation. If our good works, if we're going to teach that our good works don't earn us anything, that God's not looking to your performance, that doesn't determine whether you are saved or not, what's to stop us? from living however we want. This is called antinomianism, meaning there is no law. It doesn't matter how we live. And, and this accusation can be a legitimate concern. People might look at, at a church that only ever preaches grace, and, and meanwhile the young people are out every weekend drinking themselves into a heap. Could it be that that church has gotten things wrong? Well, the first thing we should, we should recognize, if we go back to Galatians chapter 5, the first thing we should recognize is this is not only a Canadian Reformed problem. In fact, it's a problem that Paul himself confronted. So you see in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul responds, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Well, what was that offense that, that people were so offended by? The Jews persecuted Paul and the Christians primarily because they believed that this gospel will lead people to immoral living. You can see the same thing in several places in, in Romans. Paul admits that people accuse him of preaching that gospel. That if I preach grace, then why not live however we want? It's in Romans 3. comes up twice in Romans 6 as well as in Romans 5. And, and Paul continually was up against that same accusation. So it should be an indicator to us in a Canadian Reformed Church that in fact we've rightly understood Paul's gospel if people are accusing us of this potential consequence. If no one accuses us of this possibility, then that might mean we actually got the gospel wrong because they accused Paul of the same possibility. Now you might, you might say, okay, but isn't there some truth in, in that accusation? Well, first, we should respond by, by saying that uh, the lawlessness, the antinomianism certainly does exist in, in our church as well. There's no use denying that. 
but it can never be a result of overemphasizing grace. Some people will say it like that. The pastor, the problem is the pastor preaches grace too much. He overemphasizes grace. And if you think about that, what, what would the pastor do instead? Should he preach half grace and half works? The problem is never overemphasizing the truth, though it might be underemphasizing other truths. So that's not at all how Paul responds. He says, well, don't preach grace too much, and then you won't have this problem. Instead, he responds in Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And then he goes on, you see in verse 16, he says, Instead, I say, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he speaks about that, that struggle between the Spirit and the flesh. And then finally, he finishes in verse 21. He says, uh, the, the works, he lists the works of the flesh, and he says, Just as I told you in the time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul does acknowledge that, those, that that response is a reality, but he also says those people will not be saved. So you might ask, well, how do we put it together then? Doesn't our obedience count, after all, for our salvation? How do you put this together in a way that, that then doesn't undermine the gospel? Well, jump ahead with me once more to verse 24 where Paul finally finishes, he says, those who are Christ have, now notice the past tense, those who belong to Christ have crucified the works of the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, there's no question that antinomianism, living however you want, certainly does exist in Canadian Reformed churches. There's no use denying that. And, and the reality is, we preachers share a certain measure of the guilt for that. It's fair to say that the warnings of verse 21 all the way through, through 25 haven't been emphasized like they ought to be. We preachers have been responsible as well as parents and elders and other leaders in the church. But the solution as pastors or parents or elders is not to stop preaching the gospel and to start preaching works. Instead, it's to call one another to prove that they belong to Christ. As Paul says, those who belong to Christ have already crucified the flesh and its works. If you belong to Christ, your life is a battle against sin. If your life isn't a battle against sin, it's an indicator you don't belong to Christ. Your performance, your battle against sin is not what saves you. Belonging to Christ is what saves you. But your life is the indicator of whether or not you do in fact belong to Christ. So we should call one another to prove that we do in fact belong to Him. The catechism uses the image of a branch being grafted on, onto a tree. It's a common biblical metaphor. And we might think of what the Lord Jesus says in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
You might think of also what Christ taught in Matthew 7. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You can tell a tree by its fruit. Now that needs to be taught in our churches by elders, by parents, by, by pastors from the pulpit. It's faith that ties me to Christ's righteousness, but such a faith must work through love as proof of the fact that it's tied and rooted in Christ. So my obedience to God, my love for God, is the evidence of belonging to Christ. You might think of also what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. It's a very interesting commandment he gives uh, to, to his readers. He says, make your calling and election a sure thing. Make your election sure. And we can't determine, we can't force God to elect us. That's, that's an obvious contradiction. But he says, make it clear that God has elected you. And on the final day, it will be clear whether or not you, you are elect. Your obedience, your love for God is the evidence of your election. And we can't put our human responsibility and God's sovereignty together in a way that logically satisfies us. But we can take the commandment to prove that we belong to Christ. And on the final day, said, we, can, we can look back and say, yes, there's the evidence that Christ was working in me. That's why James also speaks very strongly of faith needing to be supplied by works. He says, faith without works is dead. But now, brothers and sisters, that warning that's certainly there in Galatians, he's very, very explicit and, and even harsher than we might want to, to be to his congregation, that warning cannot ever exist without the gospel. And that gospel needs to be pure and simple and plain. If you turn from your sin to Christ and confess your sins and embrace Christ as your salvation, you will be saved. There's no mysterious experiential dimension that we should be striving after as some special assurance that the gospel is true for us. It's that plain and simple. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. You will be saved. We should never undermine that gospel for the sake of warning others to, to obey. That promise is that plain and simple. You might think of what, what the Lord Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John. He says, All whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Christ will not cast out those who come to Him. And they, de they do not need to look for a special sign, a special feeling of assurance that they do indeed belong. Believe the Gospel and then live it out. So that promise of the Gospel should never be undermined even for the sake of spurring one another on to obedience. It's the Gospel that changes us. We don't achieve Christ's righteousness for Him. We don't change first and, and fix up our lives first and then once it's all cleaned up, go to Christ to be saved because we never will clean our lives up without the Gospel. We'll either lie to ourselves that we've succeeded when in fact we haven't or we'll despair and give up altogether. Change flows out of 
the gospel. It's knowing that my righteousness is not here, but in Christ, in heaven, that frees me to live for Christ. Think again of what John Bunyan said when he realized that his righteousness was before God in Christ, not here in his performance. Then the shackles finally fell off of his arms and feet. The reality is, the more I grow in holiness, the more I will see how much, in fact, I fail to, to be the person that God is calling me to be. And so a performance-based gospel is no gospel at all. We, we need to cling to Christ first, and the obedience must follow from that. From the gospel, from that point of view, we wage war against our sin. So let me finish with the words of, of 1 John 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Amen.